The Second Crusade has failed, but its end will open the door to the Plantagenets, that brilliant, avaricious, rebellious, murderous family that will dominate the history of Western Europe for a century to come. Here's their story, so riveting that we still are fascinated by it 900 years later. Welcome back to Lion's Forge. My name is Beckett, and I want to tell you a story, an epic true story of five kings and the Lion Queen. Season two, episode seven, The Glory Years. What busy people they would forever be, these Plantagenets. The chronicler Peter of Bois has always, rightly or wrongly, been considered a long-time Plantagenet courtier, close to the royal couple. Entirely familiar with all the planning and scheduling that went into endless rounds of royal travel, Peter wrote a letter in later days to a friend, the Archbishop of Palmero, who had demanded an accurate description of the habits of what the Archbishop called the Lord King of England. Peter, who admired much about Henry, wrote, quote, He never sits unless riding a horse or eating. Truly unlike other kings, he does not linger in his palace, but travels through the provinces to investigate the doings of all. Just reading about the man from the comfort of an armchair is exhausting. At war with the ferocious Welsh one month, setting out on a year-long tour of every town in England the next, Christmas here, Easter there, crossing and recrossing the channel in his Sneka, the fast Norman longboat that busy officials preferred. And they were indeed busy. Because the government was expanding faster than the educational system, there simply weren't enough good people to go around. Even fifty years later, in the reign of Henry's son John, one harassed official named William of Rodham was expected to serve simultaneously as keeper of the king's ports and galleys, warden of the royal tin mines, master of the mints in London and Canterbury, trustee for revenues from the vacant bishopric of Bath, advisor on the matter of currency reform, traveling circuit judge, canon of the Diocese of Wells, and archdeacon for Taunton. And all of this was done at a dead run. In 34 years on the throne, Henry and his enormous retinue spent Christmas at two dozen different places and traveled across the channel some 30 times. Every day would be packed with activity for this restless king, sending couriers, receiving diplomats, arguing theology, reading books, giving alms, wrestling, hunting, hawking, glaring at his barber and his tailor, jesting, challenging, jumping up to check out fortifications, calling council meetings, and always thinking, thinking, thinking. One of his most startling ideas was that he and his queen should lay aside their crowns, which they actually did, setting the golden circlets on the altar at Worcester during an Easter Mass. 
the best rationale for his decision probably had less to do with personal humility, which Henry did not possess in the slightest, than with his deciding that the various ceremonies tied to the crown were no longer all that necessary. As is true in our day, wearing the crown signified a public showing of royal power, a topic he evidently felt had been quite satisfactorily dealt with. Henry may have been intrigued by the idea of doing without a metal crown, but not for one instant did this man ever stop planning the expansion of his empire. His ambition was gargantuan. In 1158, when he was 25, he made two brisk moves. One involved his eldest surviving son, Prince Henry, three years old by now. A generation before, when King Henry had been a little boy himself, his father, Geoffrey Le Bel, had proposed to Louis Capet that little Henry marry Louis, and let's not forget Eleanor's, daughter Marie. At the time, the Plantagenets had been seen as the undignified, if incredibly lucky, descendants of Satan. The offer had been rejected. Now, the Plantagenets were astride the very world, and Henry decided for another go at bonding his family to the kings of France. This time, one would imagine there was rather more in it for the Capets. Not only was an alliance with this King Henry now a stellar opportunity in itself, but Louis and his second wife had just had their first child after four years of marriage. Regrettably for the day, the baby was only another of Louis's seemingly endless procession of daughters. Once upon a time, Henry Plantagenet would have been lucky beyond luck to marry one of those Capetian daughters, but this time, Louis's newest baby girl, Marguerite, would be very fortunate to be chosen as a bride for baby Prince Henry of England. There was, of course, the small issue that Louis might recoil from the prospect of having to be grateful that one of his many girls might marry his former wife's royal son. Someone had to present this opportunity to the French in just the right way. Thomas Beckett, resourceful Thomas, known for his way with the gracious gesture and the elegant presentation, was charged with a delicate embassy to the French king. The arrangements must have taken months, since it's a wonder enough shipping could be found to get Beckett's entourage across the channel. In June 1158, Thomas Becket, Chancellor of England and personal representative of majestic Henry Plantagenet, King of England, Duke of Normandy, Duke of the Aquitaine and Count of Anjou, entered the gates of Paris. Reports vary, but it can accurately be said that Thomas did not enter alone. If you are willing to believe the most breathless of the chroniclers, 200 footmen marched ahead, singing to the sound of horns and pounding drums. Behind them came Beckett's superb pack of leashed hunting dogs and greyhounds with their handlers. Each animal brushed until its coat gleamed. 
other servants showed off priceless hawks of every known kind. The splendid birds rustling and settling their great wings on arms protectively sheathed in leather. Then the crowd could gape at eight enormous wagons, each requiring five heavy draft horses to pull its weight, filled with Beckett's wardrobe and sufficient furnishings to simulate the comforts of home, including dozens of iron-bound kegs of wonderful English ale. There were astonished reports that each wagon's lead horse was ridden by a monkey that had once been carried by some unimaginable caravan to Beckett's private zoo and was now back across the channel to adorn this incredible parade. Beside each wagon walked a manservant accompanied by an English mastiff, magnificent dogs that could weigh 200 pounds. A dozen horses, beautifully bridled, followed, carrying the finest leather saddlebags filled with gold coins. Beckett's staff had packed books, silver table settings, carpets, furs, and, it was rumored, no less than two dozen varied silk robes to ensure that the Chancellor looked his stylish best. And there was still more. Squires, knights, and servants making up Beckett's personal household, heads high, dressed in the latest fashion, feathers in their caps, the points of their shoes tightly curled, banners rippling, armor burnished, stepped along the Parisian cobblestones. Behind this spectacular parade of beauty, lavish wealth, and pride, rode Thomas Beckett on a magnificent horse. It might not have been the greatest day of Beckett's life, but if it wasn't, it's hard to say what would have topped it. Meanwhile, as Henry and Thomas roared through life, Queen Eleanor was living a rather more unpleasant reprise of memories from her own days among the Capets, since Henry reportedly was negligent, if not outright stingy, when it came to provisioning his own household. It's hard to tell exactly what life at his court was like. Henry had never cared all that much about comfort or feasting, so there are gloomy reports of half-baked bread, sour wine, stale fish, and bad meat appearing with dreary regularity at his table. He apparently didn't even bother with the professional musicians who entertained other enlightened courts, forcing his family to content itself with a solitary and probably melancholy harpist or violist, although possibly enlivened by the occasional appearance of his pet performing bears. On the other hand, there are recorded orders for half a ton of almonds, probably destined for the royal bakery, or meals featuring roast crane, so perhaps things weren't always as grim as critics maintained. People were constantly coming and going with hunting dogs, hawks, game destined for the table and trophy heads of stags and boars. If you were lucky, you might be a guest the same night Roland the Farter made a professional appearance. Sadly, missing Roland, 
you could perhaps find diversion among the reported minstrels, prostitutes, dice players, flatterers, hucksters, clowns, actors, barbers, and buffoons said to be in daily and nightly attendance upon the king. We do know that Thomas Becket, an enthusiastic and free-spending host, took on all the social obligations that Henry chose to ignore. Given a choice, Guest may have happily opted for Becket's home, with its clean floors, scrub tables, fresh cooking, best wines, strolling pipers, and clever conversation. The Chancellor's invitations became ones to covet and flaunt in the opinion of every dignitary in London. Even Henry could often be lured, though he liked to complain about the traffic outside Thomas's gate, and was said to mock the refinements of Becket's house by riding his horse into the dining room, where he'd show off by dismounting and then vaulting the banquet table. That summer of 1155, Eleanor settled inside the refurbished walls of Westminster with her boys, their nursemaids, and her ladies. She didn't care all that much for Thomas. To the great heiress, product of ten generations of nobility, Becket was a mere commoner who had been raised to improbable greatness thanks to her husband's infatuation with the man. Infatuation which put the commoner in her husband's enthralled company every day. Consider her state of mind as best friends Henry and Thomas left London for the season to hunt for sport. They would go after wolves, wild boar, and deer with their packs of hounds, then spend a couple days in open fields, setting their falcons to bring down doves or to fight with eagles in rolling sky battles as thunderclouds built to the west. Eleanor, a storied beauty and seductress, source of a good deal of Henry's wealth, was largely cut off from this new core of Henry's life. No doubt oblivious as husbands can occasionally be, Henry showed up with Thomas in September, happy, ragged, sunburned, relaxed, exercised, and bursting with energy to start a new governmental year. Bursting with energy, and probably having whored his way across the countryside, Henry found the time to impregnate his wife again. Their most recent child, young Henry, would have been only some six months old at the time. First on the formal agenda that fall was the annual treasurer's report on the kingdom's income and expenses. It was traditionally presented at Winchester, the place where Stephen and Henry had once signed the paperwork that ensured Henry Plantagenet's future as the King of England. Reports would be due from the tax collectors, addressing such pressing issues as what the local sheriff reported as the arrears of rent on the silver mines at Carlisle, outstanding for many years. Winchester was also convenient enough to the Channel that Henry's mother made the trip from Rouen to see her son for the first and only time in the role, and in the country she had fought over for twenty years. Matilda had an unpleasant secondary reason to brave autumn squalls on that notoriously rough crossing. 
for she had news of Henry's younger brother, Geoffrey. As was so often the case among male siblings, who got what from Papa was rarely far from their minds, and Geoffrey believed that the least grandiose of Henry's many titles, that of Count of Anjou, should have been made over to him once Henry had gorged on all the rest. Now, said Matilda, Geoffrey was suspiciously intent on fortifying his castles. Henry had his own news. It was his assessment that the time had come to launch a war against what the chronicler Gerald of Wales considered the spectacularly ugly Irish. Insulting the Irish was evidently already an entrenched practice, one with a remarkably long shelf life. Friedrich Engels, a man of the people who helped write the Communist Manifesto, among other achievements, would describe the Irish in the 1840s as, quote, little above the savage, with their filth and poverty, unquote, cutting them little slack for suffering through one of the worst famines in Western history. And this is a man who had Russian peasants to compare them to. All of the anti-Irish prejudice ignored the fact that ancient Celtic culture predated the Romans, who were happy to use old Celtic roads and settlements as the basis for their own establishments. In any case, the idea of taking on these ferocious, if unattractive, barbarians was the kind of audacious physical undertaking that would be sure to delight Henry. And Eleanor had a surprise of her own, consisting of a brand new claim, never before asserted, that was soon called the Queen's Gold. Queens traditionally had an expense allowance from the Exchequer, but this was different. This was an independent income stream derived from certain criminal fines and certain transactions with the 12th century version of bankers, which is to say, moneylenders. While criminals and moneylenders might not be thrilled at this innovation, Eleanor could now enjoy money of her own, handled by her own clerk in the exchequer, for the rest of her life. She had thought it all out. The new law even directed that should the king agree to refund his own tax, she was under no obligation to do the same with hers. After all, there were plenty of things to spend it on. Candles, nursemaid salaries, bequests and charities, incense to mask the stench of London streets, food, clothing, wines from Bordeaux for the household, even a charming expense for a medieval baby carriage. All the animated heat and light of that Winchester conference, though, produced very little besides income for Eleanor. Matilda, once a warrior, if now retired to a life of good deeds and warm relations with the monks of Beck Abbey, supposedly stood up to give her firmly held opinion that Henry's Irish ambitions were a fool's errand. Whether Matilda was the reason or not, the Irish venture was duly shelved, at least for the moment. Henry's mother then made her stately way home and never visited England again although Henry would still take the time to see her in Normandy whenever he was nearby. Eleanor, 
newly pregnant, got her money. Along with Henry's promise that she was to help his officials run England while he made his way to Anjou to take on his impossible brother. She settled down to her new job with a will. There simply was no end to all the wrongs to be righted. As her clerk wrote, Eleanor, Queen of the English, to John Fitzralph, Sheriff of London, greetings. The monks of Reading have complained to me. Looking at it centuries later, it may be that the years 1154 and 1155 marked the height of Henry and Eleanor's life together. It was after the Winchester Council that the slow unraveling began, although so slowly that it would take 30 years of people's lives to play out to the end. At first, things did not seem off to a bad start. Indeed, if you were on the right side of the family, the next few years looked entirely promising. Henry made his way to Anjou to confront Geoffrey, who was ultimately not the soldier his big brother was. When the two finished wrestling, killing, and impoverishing the usual array of nameless little people who paid the taxes that financed all of this nightly striving, Geoffrey was left with nothing except the exchequer's pledge that he'd be paid an annuity as the king's brother. The supposed commitment turned out not to be worth the effort to write it out. Promised 1,500 pounds sterling a year, he was paid less than 50. Henry had deftly quenched his irritating brother's ambitions in Anjou and Maine, and put paid to Geoffrey's military pretensions, thus closing this chapter in the family's rather large book of personal quarrels. As an aside, we should note that things would improve greatly for Geoffrey within just a few months. He was asked to become the Count of the Seaport Nantes by its citizens, weary of a twenty-year civil war of their own. Given that Henry dominated the area, it's quite likely he helped shape their views on who the ideal candidate would be. But then, in the spring of 1156, that season that always haunted Eleanor, Plantagenet fortunes shifted. The couple's firstborn died, little William. He wasn't even three years old yet. That enchanting age of a chubby little body making its determined way across a room, inventing words to convey the thrill of seeing the world afresh. One day, he would have been there with his mother, his baby brother Henry, and his nurses. The next, his father, still in Anjou, was squinting up at a fast-moving courier on a mud-spattered horse. Our easy belief that losing a baby hurt people less in some earlier time can't be true. A little boy's death is heart-wrenching, whether in the 12th century or the 21st. They carried him as tenderly as they could, up the river to Reading Abbey, built 30 years earlier by the little boy's great-grandfather, Henry Beauclerk, who was buried there himself. Its stone walls have a surprisingly gentle look, if stone can be thought gentle. A fair burial place for a child nestled at Beauclerk's feet. Summer came. Eleanor gave birth to her newest baby, 
a daughter this time, named Matilda. Her older girls, born of her French marriage, were in Paris with their father Louis. They were eleven and five, while her one precious living son, Henry's baby, was fifteen months, a dangerous age, susceptible to so many terrible fevers and plagues. There are no records of Eleanor's thinking, but it's not hard to see restlessness and depression in her decision to leave England and go home. Within a few weeks of giving birth to Matilda, Eleanor bundled up her entire household and made for Saumur, in the lovely countryside of the Loire River Valley, near Fontevrault. We today know Saumur for its fairy tale silver and white castle immortalized against a gloriously blue sky by the artist who drew illustrations for the famous 14th-century prayer book we call Le Très Riche du Duc de Berry. But it didn't exist in Eleanor's day. Still, the idea of escaping London, too hot, too cold, too fetid, too gray, too busily indifferent, too close to Thomas Beckett, her constant rival for Henry's affection and attention, must have made the idea of summering in France as irresistible as it is in our day. It was short-lived. At Christmas, she was back in London, in the depths of an English winter and newly pregnant yet again, barely six months after giving birth to Matilda. It was her fourth pregnancy in four years, the sixth in her lifetime. And she was now 32 years old herself, older than her mother had been when she died. And yet again, her husband was away, fighting someone, somewhere. The fragrant summer past was a barely summoned memory. There was no way she could know it. In less than a year, in the month of September of 1157, she would give birth to a son, her third. His name would be Richard, an old Norman name unknown on either side of the family. It meant something like strong man. In later years, people would call him Lionheart. We've come to the end of our story for the time being. I am Beckett Arnold narrating from the book Lion's Forge, adapted for us by the author, Karen Markle Knapp. Thank you to Francis Butt for voicing our introduction and Eleanor herself. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating, follow our channel, and share us with your friends. Most importantly, join us again March 4th for the next episode of Lion's Forge, available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts including on YouTube with video episode trailers. Visit us on Facebook, where you can ask questions, leave reviews, and interact with me. Until next time, thank you for listening.